Hello, welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osband, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachet Ketubot, DAP Lamed Gimel, page 33. Well, yesterday we had this machlokas, or different explanation between Ula and Rabbi Yochanan, and how to explain the contradiction between our Mishnah and a Mishnah in Makot. Um, and Rabbi Yochanan's uh, way for understanding the difference between uh, our Mishnah and the Mishnah Makos was whether or not it was a case of uh, somebody being forewarned, right? Somebody having warning before they actually did a prohibition. Um, and Rabbi Eliezer on our DAP today gets into a discussion about the issue of uh, aiding zonimim, right? Conspiring witnesses or witnesses who come to the court to lie about a person. Um, and uh, we get into a question of, could you actually do hatra? Could you do warning? to Adim Zomimim, right? When would you actually warn them? And so Rabbi Eliezer says the following, Rabbi Eliezer, Adim Zomimim, Mamona Mishamim, Umilka La Lakin. So when we have Adim Zomimim, we know that they pay money, but they don't get Malkut. And the reason for this is, is Mishum Delabene Hatra Ninu, is because they never can have Hatra. They're never uh, warned. And without warning, you cannot get lashes. And again, go back to what Rabbi Yochanan said yesterday, and that will fill in a little bit more. I'm a rabbi. So rabbi says, Tida natre buchu So rabbi says, okay, yes, that's true, right? But when could we forewarn them? In other words, when could we do hatra for them? Natre buchu kara. Let's say we warn them, we do hatra right away. In other words, before they come to testify, we would warn them and say, look, if you think you're going to lie, you're, you're, you're going to be punched, right? Amri, right? But what could they say? They would say, Ishtalin, we forgot. We didn't remember that you gave us a warning. Now, I think that's interesting because I've never seen that be an issue with anything else, right? That you warn somebody and they could say, Ishtalin, right? We forgot, but okay. Natriya behu bishat masa. We could warn them at the time of action. In other words, just before they actually testify, and then it says, right, parishe um, below So we're worried about doing this because maybe they will just leave and not testify at all. In other words, I think there's something in particular about wanting people to participate in the court system, about recruiting actual judges, I sorry, about recruiting witnesses, that there's a little bit of a concern that if right before they're about to testify, we really warn them, they're going to get into a mindset of like, well, maybe it's just not worth my testifying because I could be accused of being an aidzom, you know, aidzomim when I really are not. Um, and then we finally get to a third option, which is natrebuhu levaso. Let's warn them afterwards. My tahabe habe. But the Gemara says, okay, but like once they testify, they testify. The idea for warning is it has to be beforehand. So matkifla abai. So abai says, okay. You know, uh, he objects to this and he's going to say, no, we still could find a place where we could warn them. Why don't we warn them, right, when it's like at the time of speaking? In other words, this little moment of they've actually finished saying whatever it is they needed to say is Adem, but the testimony has sort of not been like officially accepted yet, right? Or they could say like, oh, you know what? I, I want to retract what I said, something like this, right? So maybe that could be that could be the moment where you could warn them. Matkivla Rav Acha the Rav Ika. So Rav Acha, the son of Rav Ika, objects to this and says, 
No, let's warn them before they actually testify and hint to them, or some people translate that as gesture to them while they're doing the actual testimony so you could remind them. So they couldn't actually ever say, right, Easterland, they couldn't say, I forgot. You sort of keep reminding them as they're testifying, you were warned about this. Hadar Amar Abayi. So Abayi comes back and he says, Lat Mil Sahid Amri. That, what I said, is not, it's not really significant. It's not really thing. Isakadatek, right? If you want to think, right? If you want to say, right? Aidim Zomimim Srichim Hatra. That can, you know, these Aidim Zomimim need forewarning. They need warning. Kila Matrina Buhula Katlinan Luhu, right? The reason why we don't want to warn them is we don't want to kill them. And I thought this was a great insight of Abaye. Mi eka mi de inhu ba'u katle below hatra, right? Because what we say is, is the following here. Okay, let's say the thing that they would be lying about, okay, would be a case where they the, the defendant would actually end up being killed based on their false testimony, okay? And we know that Adam Zomimim get the punishment of what should have happened to the defendant had their testimony gone through. So let's say this is a case where they wanted to get him killed, right? And if at least there's no hatra, right? If they were not warned that their testimony was filed, v'inu ba'u hatra, right? We would require there to be warning. Because based on this pasuk in Devarim, which talks about Edom Zomim on chapter 19, verse 19, you shall do, you know, unto him as he conspired to do unto his brother, right? That the Adam Zomim get the same punishment, right? If they required sort of forewarning, this wouldn't be the actual uh, case here. So I think what Abaye is really trying to say here is, is that it basically when it comes to case of death penalty, if they're forewarned, right, ahead of time, okay, um, uh, you know, that if they don't have forewarning, right, that basically that their testimony is going to be false in order to punish them, right, because we need that in order to punish them, right, we need that their punishment is the same thing as do unto, you know, him as you, you know, they would get done to the Adam Zomimim what they had done to, to this person they testified falsely against, right, um, you know, doesn't this show that they actually require some type of forewarning? So I, I think that's basically what Abai is doing there. Is he's basically saying we don't really want to kill Adam Zomim. It's one thing if like Adam Zomim makes somebody pay money that they shouldn't have paid, but killing them would be a whole other thing. And then finally, we have Matila for Sama Boreza Ravirmia, or if some of the same Ravirmia objects to this, Elame Atta, right? If you right from here, you could say, and here he brings a different case, Ben Grusha Ben Chalutza. Right. Let's say you have witnesses who are going to falsely accuse a Kohen of being the son of a divorcee or the son of a Chalutza, right? Their punishment can't be from this verse of and, and they conspired, right? Because they like you can't sort of punish them with what they tried to do to this Kohen, right? It just wouldn't hold for them. Right. So maybe in that case, right, they're, they're basically, they're really punished for violating the prohibition of not to bear false witness. So maybe that's the case where they would require false, they would require forewarning, because there isn't really going to be a punishment 
that they're going to get that's equivalent to what they would have done to the priest. So in that case, maybe that's a case where they actually need hatra, right? So that we could say they were warned that they were about to violate the principle of being a false witness. Amarkra, right? So the Gemara answers, here we have a pasuk from Vayikra, chapter 24, verse 22, that says, There needs to be one manner of law, meaning, right? Law has to be equal for all. So in other words, what he what, what what the Gemara basically says to this argument of Rav Sama Barita Rav Yirmiya is, okay, since in most cases, we're not going to require any type of hot trap for Adam Zomimim, we can't make an exception for this case of the priest. So yes, they understand what he's saying, but the case of the priest is a little interesting because there's not really like a punishment that gets incurred to this priest, right? He just loses his status, but there's no punishment. So it's really just, the Adim Zomim are just punished for, or they just violated the prohibition of bearing false witness. So we can't create a scenario where there's one specific case where the Adim Zomim would need a trial. So I thought this was a great passage here that sort of really tries to go through, could you have forewarning with Adim Zomim? We basically come up with that we don't. Um, I, I'm sure we're going to have more discussion of Adim Zomim in Nizikin, but at least this was a good introductory discussion to this whole concept of, you know, would you warn people actually before they give testimony? I think the most compelling thing is, is when initially the Gemara discusses this with Rabbi Eliezer is the idea of pre below Masade, that I think people would just walk out if they were warned constantly or right before they're going to testify that there's a possibility you could be an AIDS domain. Um, That's an interesting question. What I really want to just say is, you know, wait for Makot. Because because Adam Zomamin gets so much attention and it's such a such a complicated premise, right? Adam Zomamin are they're lying witnesses, but they're not lying. They're conspiring. What does it mean they're conspiring? They're planning to do somebody in, even though they weren't even ever in the position of being able to testify about that person, right? They're lying about being able to testify. So it's like a lie upon a lie upon a lie. And the question of when you can warn somebody who's already shown up, like the very fact that they show up is a lie, it, 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 I think it gets complicated. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good way to say it. It's not just that they're lying. It's, they're real, it's conspiring. That's why that, that, that's really the English translation there. Right. You know, they, right. they want something bad to happen to that person by saying he or she, you know, did something, did something, either committed a crime or, you know, that they, that they really didn't do and hold them liable for that. And that's why it's interesting to see, you know, if Abai is pushing that they, you know, if his hidden agenda, so to speak, is that we don't want to have to put them to death, even though they were actively trying to put someone to death. But again, the act of trying to put someone to death is not quite the same thing as actual murder, right? It gets close, but then the person is still alive. So I kind of understand where as much as this is the detail, like the the line item punishment for the uh, you know, the murderous Adam Zomamin. I get why Abai would be hesitant here. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. I'm going to go on now. Um, I'm at the very bottom of Amabet. I'm sorry, at the very uh, bottom of Amad Aleph, moving on to Amabet, um, where what I want to talk about is really a very small piece, and yet it actually kind of represents, I think, a lot of the corporal punishment, the essence of corporal punishment within 
Judaism within halacha. Um, there's a, again, it's going on through the whole discussion over flogging versus money, and we've got different opinions here. And at some point in this discussion, right, in, in a, the context of Rav Ashi objecting to whatever was said before, again, this is not what I'm interested in, or at least not today. Im Tim Salomar, the point is, if you follow the logic through that we've just seen, which we haven't seen on this stuff, then you come to the point where you say, how do you know that a death sentence is, or the death, really, death punishment, is more stringent and more severe than Malko, than lashes. I'm now on a bit, right? Maybe Malko, maybe the lashes are more severe. Now, part of the reason why, of course, I love this. Now, the Gemara is, I, I want to, let me take a step back and, and say this clearly, right? I obviously love this Havamina, this question that they're even going to take the time to entertain the question of how do you know that death is worse, you know, than, than lashes? But part of the point of the Gemara here is to make the point that that is an absurd question. Right. It's coming in the context of saying, if you want to follow that logic through, then you're going to find yourself asking this question, meaning don't do that. Don't ask this question. And then, of course, the Gemara entertains this question exactly to say, how is it indeed that we know that death is more severe than lashes? And I think everybody, all of our co-learners, Yordina, I know you certainly know this, right? Like this is push up shot. This is an obvious thing, right, that the putting somebody to death is a much more severe punishment than flogging them. Flogging might hurt more at the end of the day, but it is not as severe. The Amar Rav, so here's the rationale, right? What is, how do we how do we get to this idea that death is more severe? The Amar Rav, Il Malay, Nagdua Lachanania, Mishael Vazaria, Pachul Tselma. So Rav says, what had they given lashes? Had they flogged Chanania, Mishael, and Azaria? This is the story of Daniel chapter three. Now, Daniel chapter three is a very famous passage. It's all in Aramaic, which is really difficult to read, use an English translation. It's the original story of the fiery furnace. Most people, many people, I certainly knew more about the fiery furnace from the Midrash, about Avraham Avinu, about, you know, the story kind of that's the precursor to the to Lechacha, to the story of Abraham leaving his father's house, leaving his birthplace, going to the land that God is going to show him. And there's this one verse that kind of just hints to this strange fire story in the land of the Chaldeans, which is understood to be the land of the Babylonians. And we could talk about the comparison between that Avram story and Daniel for a long time. The point is, though, that what happens, you've got a monotheist. In this case, it's really Daniel, chapter three, and they throw him into the fiery furnace. And Vulcanetzer sends him into the fiery furnace and um, sends these guys, Hanani, Michelle, and Azaria, into the fiery furnace? No, I'm sorry. Yes, that is what happens in Daniel. The Gemara here says, had they given them lashes instead of casting them into the fiery furnace, then, you know, then they would have, what would they have done? They would have worshipped the image, right? Because the concern would be the lashes would be more severe than death. Let me say this again so it's a little bit clearer, right? The Again, the reference is to the story of Nebuchadnezzar getting very upset with these monotheists. How dare they not bow down to the idols? So they cast he casts them or has them cast into the fiery furnace. And the way the story is told, right, is that they 
there's another, there's three of them in there, and then there's a fourth figure, and the understanding is the Malach Gabriel, is the Gabriel, the archangel, who's walking with them to protect them from the fiery furnace, meaning they come out unscathed, but the point is that they would have ended up dead, right, in the, in the fire. So Rav here says, had they flogged them, had they given Hanani Mishal and Azariah these lashes, instead of putting them in the fiery furnace, then Pachul Tzalmah, they would have been. They would have ended up worshiping the image, the graven image, the idol that that they were supposed to bow down to, and that's why they got thrown into the furnace instead. Amr le Rav Sama, bereid the Rav Asi le Rav Ashi, va'amr le Rav Sama, bereid the Rav Ashi le Rav, bereid the Rav Ashi le Rav Ashi. It's not exactly clear who the progenitor is here, but but the bottom line is the question is asked now. Going back to Rav Ashi, v'loshani lech ben hakaa sheyesh la kitzva. So they say, you know, you're going to say that there's no difference between a flogging that has a limit, meaning, again, Torah law has a, a maximum of 40 lashes, and really that meant 39. They only ever really gave 39 lashes, not 40, as far as I know, although I'm blanking as how I know that, so maybe don't hold me to it. But again, the point is that the lashes have a limit, meaning it's a, it's a court-ordered corporal punishment. And it's not somebody losing their temper and just flogging another person. Like, that would not be considered acceptable. This is a, a 40 lashes. That is the requirement, not less, not more, and so on. And then, uh, as compared to, the Gemara Seer says, as compared to flogging, that would not have a, a limit. Meaning, maybe Nebuchadnezzar's flogging would be the kind that would be simply designed to beat you into submission, right? To whip you into submission. In which case, that it, that perhaps might be more severe says the Gemara, right? As opposed to the Torah way of lashes is not more more than death. But maybe the Hanani Mishan Azariah story in Daniel is here to say, you know what, there is a way of lashes that could even be worse than death because it because the idea is that it carries on until you are broken and, and until you can comply. So I I'm gonna stop here. I mean the Gemara of course goes on and it does come back to the discussion of um pay payment, monetary compensation or fining as and flogging but the point here i think that i that i besides the fact that the gemara entertains the question and gives it a serious answer i think the part of what is very interesting here is a recognition that not all corporal punishments are created equal and not just because death and lashes are of a different weight but because lashes and lashes could be of a different weight if you're exacting a punishment and that requires a whipping which is so foreign to us nowadays in terms of the way somebody pays for a crime, but as compared to, you know, that's still very, very different than the kind of whippings that I guess that I associate even with, you know, the slavery experience of blacks in the American South, you know, where the, the point was for a punishment, right? Not, not because there was a legal requirement to exact a punishment because the person who commits a crime has to pay for the crime, but because, somebody, the taskmaster, so to speak, right? I could also associate it with the lashes that I assume went on in ancient Egypt, right? For the Jews, the Israelites, whatever, right? The idea that the there is, um, there are those who have a motivation simply to whip the perpetrator until they are broken. So or in this case, or in the case of Hanani Mishan Azariah, the people who refuse to do what they're supposed to do, just to whip them until they are broken. And I, I kind of understand 
how the overseer might be so frustrated with these, you know, these stubborn Jews. What are they doing? That that's the goal. But the point is that that might even be worse than death, as opposed to simple, again, maybe terrible to experience, but uh, a payment for the crime that one has done. And don't do that crime and you won't get lashes. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting. The Gemara here is sort of trying to point us that Monkos is really a bad punishment. Like the fact that they entertain this question, I, I, I think it's sort of acknowledging like physical pain in this world is a different experience than the one of death. And maybe it's also like that's the pain we know versus the pain we don't know. Like we don't really know what happens when you die. You know, does it feel painful? Does it not feel painful? Uh, there's something I think very theological and existential about this this discussion here on this page. I think that's certainly true. I think this, but I think that the, I want to say it maybe again, maybe this is too existential of a statement, but I feel like death has an end and the kind of flogging that is simply to beat somebody into compliance until they are broken right. has no has end. a potential it's to torture. have no end. Right. It's torture. Exactly. It ends up being torture. So the whole point of Jewish lashes, right? The, the corporal punishment of the Torah having a limit of 40, even if it's 39 in enactment, is to prevent anybody from reaching the point of torture. That doesn't mean it's fun for the person getting flogged. It's a terrible whipping, but there's a limit to it. And the Torah requires that limit in a in what's presented here as, lo and behold, in fact, a merciful way. It sounds, again, any corporal punishment feels very harsh, I think, to Western modern ears, but it's a real difference. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend e. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Town with Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.